quality deficits have long been apparent in U.S. healthcare, but despite substantial experimentation with standardized measurement, public reporting, reward and penalty programs over the past two decades, average performance on quality measures has remained about the same. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Elizabeth McGlynn, Vice President at Kaiser Permanente Research and Executive Director of the Kaiser Permanente Center for Effectiveness and Safety Research. As part of the journal's series on the fundamentals of U.S. health policy, Dr. McGlynn has written a perspective article about the quality of health care in the United States. Dr. McGlynn, your 2003 research found that U.S. adults received about 55% of the recommended care for the leading causes of death and disease. And you write now in your perspective article that not much has changed since then. So why is it important for individual doctors to be aware of the state of health care quality in the U.S. in general? I think physicians in general are aware of the importance of quality. Quality is the delivery of care that makes it possible for their patients to get the best possible outcomes. But I think if you aren't aware of quality deficits, you may not be willing to be engaged in the work it takes to close those deficits. And so I think when we wrote the initial piece in 2003, one of our main objectives was just to raise awareness. I think the other thing is that physicians may need some additional information about the things they could do to try to close those deficits. In your article, you cite the example of hypertension as an area where little progress has been made over the past two decades. What will it take to provide high-quality care for chronic conditions like hypertension, and what's kept us from delivering that kind of care? Well, I think we have some examples of where better care has been delivered for chronic diseases. And, And in the article, I give the example of the experience that we've had at Kaiser Permanente in Northern California where we've been able to substantially improve the proportion of our patients who have hypertension, whose blood pressure is under control. But it's taken a real concerted effort. It's taken leadership commitment and leadership engagement in paying attention to that area of care delivery. It took us developing a registry so we knew all of the patients who had hypertension in our system, It took a number of different factors over the years that were patient-facing and that were systems that helped physicians be aware of the current blood pressure status for their patients. And so we were able to move the dial quite a bit. And that kind of systematic approach to the management of chronic conditions is something we've done and other high-performing health systems have done in a number of areas. It's something that's more difficult for physicians in small or even medium-sized group practices to do on their own. So I think this is the main point about quality. It frankly takes a system. And I think when we look at some of the bright spots of where that's been done, you can infer some of the things that we may need to find mechanisms to push more broadly through the healthcare system. You talk in your article about how policymakers have emphasized measurement as the key to driving quality improvement in the United States. What's the scope of those efforts and why, as you say, have they produced so little progress relative to the investments that have been made in them? Well, I think measurement is very important. Honestly, you can't improve if you don't know where you're at, but I don't think measurement is enough. And the measurement has been fairly wide ranging. And in fact, many physicians and health systems feel burdened by the amount of measurement that's going on from regulators, from accreditors, from the government, and from all sorts of different sources. 
But just being told where you stand in performance isn't really enough to change that. And I think there need to be additional mechanisms to help improve care delivery in those areas where the performance isn't at the level that one would hope. So I think measurement is important. I think it's terribly important, but it's just not enough to change. And what about financial incentives to improve quality? Why have those levers been only marginally effective? I think financial incentives have been only marginally effective for a couple of reasons. One is that a lot of the examples that we have of financial incentives have been quite small in terms of either the amount of care that has been affected by those incentives or even the financial benefits to improved performance that a physician or a group or a hospital might experience as a result of delivering better performance. So the financial incentives, the size of them are quite small. I think the other thing is they aren't enough to fix some fundamental issues with, say, the lack of systemness in our healthcare delivery system. And that actually takes quite concerted effort and some investments. And I think there isn't enough to be gained from the way a lot of those programs have been structured to make the kinds of investments in systems and processes and maybe even staffing that's necessary to provide the kind of support and wraparound services that are needed to move the dial on quality. So in that regard, how do you see social factors as being related to healthcare quality? And what kinds of initiatives could you see strengthening linkage between healthcare systems and public health and community-based services? I think the COVID epidemic has really made it very evident that the social circumstances, the environments, the social needs, food, housing, transportation, other things that people face in their everyday lives have a dramatic impact on people's health. And we've known this for a long time. I don't think that is surprising. I think it's just that it is now more part of our national conversation. And I often say Maslow was right. If you don't have stable housing, a stable source of food, an ability to live in an environment with clean air and water, that there is very little medical care can do on top of that to improve your health. And so I think the ability to connect attention to the places where people live, work, and play, and making sure that those are positive environments that can support health are critical for enabling the country to achieve the sort of health outcomes that we would like to achieve and that we see in other countries. And so I think some of it is just trying to work collaboratively with other social services agencies in a community. Healthcare is local, and so are a lot of these other social factors are very localized. Frankly, I think some of it is, and we've been aware of this or more aware of it since the George Floyd protests, which are the institutional, the structural racism in this country, lots of barriers to healthy living that we just need to break down. And so I think that health systems should be engaged with these other actors in their communities and at the state and national level to try to break down the barriers and to try to improve the circumstances in which people live so that we can build on top of that opportunities for healthier living. So you mentioned other countries. Have other countries managed to substantially improve the quality of the care that they provide? And what kinds of lessons could the United States find there? I do think that other countries have invested quite a bit more in the social infrastructure in their countries. And we see 
that those investments play out in terms of better health outcomes. So longer life expectancies, better quality of life for people in those countries. And this varies. I mean, there are areas where the U.S. does much better. Cancer is an area where we do much better. But for a lot of other kinds of chronic disease and chronic health conditions that people face, there are other countries that are doing a better job. And I think it's because the mix of health and social investments look a bit different. There's been great academic work done on this that demonstrates where the U.S. might look to improve its health outcomes by making investments early in life and then over time by, frankly, spending more in the social sector. Finally, you say in your article, and you're suggesting now, that the path to higher quality care in the United States requires reconsidering our approaches to measurement, to financing, to organizational structures, and having a new emphasis on these social needs. So what are the first steps we can take to move in that direction? We need to start by looking at the underlying drivers of health and really understanding the contributions that these factors, social needs, physical health, mental health, we haven't really talked about mental health in this conversation, what those each contribute to achieving the kinds of health outcomes that we would like to have for this country, which often at a high level come down to life expectancy and quality of life. And then look at what the effective mechanisms are for addressing those factors and look at the ways in which we might reorganize and finance systems to deliver more of the kinds of investments that would achieve these kinds of health outcomes. So I think there may be very localized solutions that have much more solid connections between healthcare systems and the range of social service agencies out there. It might be things that are investments in housing and addressing homelessness. I think it could be taking a look at measures that right now may emphasize one thing at a time and looking at more comprehensive approaches to measurement. The original study that we published in 2003 took a look at all of the care that people needed, and it gave a score for overall how were you doing with serving the needs of each individual patient. And there's very little in our measurement systems today that take that perspective. And we may need to really take a look at the way that we pay for care today. There's a lot of concern, and I know there will be other articles in your series that are written on what we do about the cost of care. But I think many of the kinds of suggestions that are being made could take as an opportunity either reallocating some of the way that we spend money or reorganizing the way that financing flows today. I think what we've learned from COVID is that we need a serious reinvestment in the public health infrastructure. A lot of the fundamentals of good health start with good public health, and that's a sector that has been left to decay for way too long, and we're paying the price of it in COVID today. But I think that we need that strong public health infrastructure going forward, even when we get to a future state where COVID is just one more disease that we have to cope with and not the dominant disease. So I think looking at all of those infrastructure investments and then thinking about what are the measures that drive systems and individual health professionals toward some common sets of goals and some outcomes that are the kinds of things everybody wants for themselves and their family. I think all of those things. And I think it'll take a lot of investment. I don't think we have 
the measures on the shelf. I don't think we have exactly the right financing mechanisms, although we've been experimenting with things and I think we know what works and what doesn't work. I think another thing I talk about a lot is finding ways to stop the stuff that doesn't work so that we have the space and energy to try new approaches. We tend in this country to layer things on top and don't give enough energy or space to the innovations that might be more effective than the things that we've already shown don't work. Thank you, Dr. McGuinn.